Good afternoon, KZMU listeners from near and afar. This is uh, Lisa Hathaway, and it is time for the March installment of Great Wide Open. Today on Great Wide Open, we're going to have a conversation with wildlife biologist and outdoor enthusiast in general, Eric Chabot, who used to be a Moab resident. Eric and I are both biologists and we are going to discuss today the importance of nest closures and how they affect outdoor enthusiasts. Hi, Eric, and welcome to Great Wide Open. Hey, thanks for having me on, Lisa. I appreciate it. It's great to see you here back in Moab in the in the for reals. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I'm really happy that um, things are toning down a little bit with the pandemic to where we can travel a, a little bit here and um, and and start to ex- explore and enjoy the outdoor activities again that we that we love to do. It is feeling a little bit a year later like we are starting to get back to the before times. Almost, almost. almost. Still trying to be careful, but but yeah, no, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited for today's conversation. I think it's a timely one too, just because here we are in springtime. It's early March, and this is really when the nesting season, the reproductive season, gets going for a lot of species, and for the raptors in particular that that so many people are concerned about um, down in Indian Creek and then and then elsewhere around the Moab area. So we're gonna, you and I are both. I'm going to call us accidental wildlife biologists. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Neither one of us went to um, college to get a degree in wildlife biology. I got a degree in straight-up biology, thinking I was going to spend my life sewing knees back together. And you have a degree in economics. I do. My senior year of college, um, I I found rock climbing out at the Gunks in in upstate New York, where I was in school at the time, and through... um, Going on climbing trips, I just connected with the outdoors really strongly and decided that natural resources was and, and conservation was something that I wanted to to pursue as a career. So I, I did a couple years of AmeriCorps with the Washington Conservation Corps um, out in, in Washington State, a uh, short stint with the Peregrine Fund down in New Mexico, um, doing a endangered species reintroduction project with Alplomato falcons as a seasonal worker. And, and then I... Um, kind of fell onto some ski bumming, but, but was still interested in, in conservation and, and ended up taking a position here in Moab with the Division of Wildlife uh, doing fishery stuff on the Green and the Colorado River uh, for a season. And, and that seasonal technician lifestyle allowed me to live in different places and travel and explore different areas and, and in different recreational opportunities that I wanted, but, but also to pursue conservation. At the same time, and so uh, following that, I uh, ended up taking a position with Hawkwatch International up in Salt Lake City, and that really kind of solidified my my interest in birds and interest in raptors. And one thing led to another, and it turned out that Hawkwatch needed a rock climber to help them access Golden Eagle nests for a, a big transmitter deployment project that I did on nestlings. So that kind of helped me build up my uh, my reputation within that organization. And and one thing led to another, and and that was about eight years ago now, and so I've, I've been a biologist ever since. Now, I'm a biologist with uh, Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. We're a nonprofit that conserves birds and their habitats through science, education, stewardship. Uh, our headquarters are located in Colorado, and our work radiates from the Rockies to the Great Plains, Mexico, and beyond. Uh, we monitor and research birds to inform conservation efforts. We also offer opportunities for people of all ages to connect with nature and we work with ranchers and other landowners on projects to enhance habitat for birds and other wildlife on their land. Um, 
more in the Great Plains region. That's a lot of hats to wear. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting transition for me. Um, I'm I'm moving from a more field focused role, and that's what we'll be kind of discussing today is is that that field uh, biology that that you and I both have experience with. But I'm moving more from that into more of a a technical role where I'm um, providing GIS support to the the um, biometricians with Bird Conservancy to support their research on bird populations. So it's interesting for me because I get to diversify the type of projects that I'm working on a little bit away from raptors and towards um, general population ecology. Well, I hope you still get plenty of field time because I know you love being out there. Thanks. I appreciate that. The other thing that you and I have in common is that we were we are both accidental or non-accidental rock climbers. And on that note, we would just like to say to you KZMU listeners who are also fans of the Cast or the Runout podcast that uh, Eric and I are sitting here in the Cast mobile the studio. The one and only mobile studio. The one and only Fuego. And so on that note, we're going to do an Cast classic. Ah, cheers. Cheers to you, Lisa. So we are rock climbers and we are also wildlife biologists and I feel like that gives us a unique perspective wearing both hats of um, embracing wildlife protections and conservation measures particularly for birds of prey which is what we both specialize in. Absolutely and and growing up and starting climbing out in the east coast um, raptor closures are, are pretty ubiquitous out there um, so I was familiar with it um, but it really came um, to the fr- to the forefront with me when I was out doing Golden Eagle nest surveys and and noticed uh, a nest that actually failed near a sport climbing area um, out in the West Desert in, in Utah and and that one thing led to another and uh, the BLM was interested in in the activities that were happening out there and and I was interested in um, in helping the climbing community of which I'm a member. Uh, try to mitigate their own impacts as much as possible. And so I started just to facilitate these conversations between local climbing organizations and land managers. Um, and and for the most part, the climbing community um, is a, a pretty environmentally conscious one. And, and most people want to do the right thing, in my experience. There's a variety of opinions about, about what that thing is. And I think that's why conversations like this are really important and why people like us they can kind of understand both sides have a role to play in, in facilitating those conversations. Well, and also another factor in this whole um, role that we can play is climbing, as we all know, as have all outdoor activities, has had a huge explosion in the past decade. Absolutely. So areas like Indian Creek and the isolated cliffs where um, a golden eagle might have a reasonably good chance of nest success and climber interaction when it was more sporadic, those times have changed, but also getting information out has become both more difficult and easier. More difficult because there are so many people to get the message to, but at the same time easier because we have so many platforms to do this. Absolutely, I think think the first point that you made is super important. The good old days are gone. And as a community of climbers and of outdoor recreationists in general, our impacts are much more significant than they were a decade ago or, or two decades ago. And those impacts can can manifest in a variety of ways. And, and some of those are on wildlife. And I think it's just important to have a conversation and to figure out what we're doing 
and make sure that we're okay with that as a community. When a big new project, a new road or a new uh, housing development or something gets built, there's there's an environmental analysis process that that they have to go the developers have to go through in order to really analyze the impacts of this of this new activity and so with this gradual increase that we're seeing maybe we haven't had the opportunity to do that i think it's important also to go into the biology of why things like climbing closures or uh, avoidance areas as the BLM is calling them uh in indian creek this year are important and can and can benefit uh raptors and other wildlife species typically in the springtime across the nation we will see things that are called in some places closures in some places avoidance areas that will occur during the nesting season of um, raptors and these raptors uh, are protected by numerous things some are species of concern in a state some are federally protected species that might be threatened or endangered Uh, many are protected by the migratory bird treaty act Mm -hmm. and the most important part of all these protections is that these individual species are generally under some kind of threat. Their numbers are not growing and achieving recovery numbers in the case of a threatened or endangered species in the way we'd like to see them. And the primary reason for that is that they have difficulty nesting. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about the biology and the timeline that is involved sure. with nesting, which some the outdoor enthusiast crowd might not be aware of just how finicky this is. Sure, so, so birds of prey are typically long-lived, slow reproducing species. So that does mean that that, that reproductive, reproductive season is really important in sustaining healthy populations. I, would, I wanna disagree with something, or at least add a nuance to what you just said about population stability. I think even in the case where populations are stable, it's still the right thing to do, in my opinion, uh, to avoid disturbing uh, an animal that's reproducing. I think, to me, that's not necessarily... As a biologist, we try to consider populations, but as a conservationist, I'm concerned with individuals as well. And so, if I know that I'm disturbing a bird, even if that bird is part of a species that their population is, is stable and fine, I would still choose not to if I if I knew what I was doing and had the opportunity to make that choice. Like I would rather not. Well, as, so as I like to joke, if you required a mile of cliff to reproduce, you know, to get it on, and you had people all up in your grill, how would you? Sure, feel? right. So, <laughs> yeah, let's get into the reproductive biology a little bit. So they're slow to reproduce, and and they have fairly high um, nest failure rates and and low nestling survivorship post fledging. So giving them the space that they need in order to reproduce is really important to uh, allow them to reproduce successfully. They try once a year and they're really particular about the areas that they like to nest, which I think is an important thing because a lot of times when I talk about this issue with climbers, they look up and down Indian Creek and they say, well, there's miles of cliff line here. Why can't the peregrines nest wherever they want? And I I kind of have two things to say about that. Number one, why don't we turn that on its head and say, well, you can climb wherever you want. And, and then they'll say, oh, no, well, this is why we like this area. There's particular characteristics of a wall that make it attractive for climbing. You like it to be steep. You like it to have good cracks. You like it to have the right type of exposure to the sun so you can climb in a, a certain season. Um, so all cliff lines not created equal from a climbing perspective. Well, the same thing's true for nesting peregrines like we have in Indian Creek. 
Which wall always closes? Reservoir wall. What's right by the reservoir wall? A reservoir. A reservoir. Right. And, and peregrines love to hunt other birds, which are keying in on that resource, that reservoir that's right there. So for them, that's a high value area. And that's why that, that pair comes back to that territory every single year. So in some cases, there can be some flexibility in terms of where the birds nest, but generally they're picking out the nest site that's going to work the best for them, that's going to give them the best access to prey, the most sheltered conditions for their nest ledge, and, and everything that they need to be able to reproduce successfully. So by giving them the space and giving them the opportunity to choose early season, we, we get to maximize their chances of reproducing successfully. Uh, I guess I'll go through kind of what happens in the nesting season a little bit and, and sort of explain how some of these closures work. A lot of places will have very widespread closures early in the nesting season. And what that does is that allows nesting raptors a chance to pick out which spot they want to be in. And then as time goes on, biologists uh, like myself or Lisa will go out and do monitoring and they'll, they'll determine, okay, well, there's a pair, one pair of peregrines in this area and this year they chose to nest on such and such wall and they didn't choose to nest on the other one. So we can go ahead and open that other one up. And that's why you see closures kind of winnowing down throughout the course of the nesting season, but they might remain in place at a particular wall once biologists establish that that's where the particular year's reproductive attempt is going to be made. Does that kind of make sense? It totally makes sense. As time goes on, they'll They'll do um, courtship displays. They'll bring food to each other, bring food into the nest, bring sticks in sometimes in the case of golden eagles. And eventually they'll, they'll lay eggs and start incubating. And that early nesting season, they, they're really, really sensitive. And once they've laid eggs, they'll still abandon the nest pretty easily if they get disturbed. So a disturbance might be as simple as for a more remote nest, someone coming within half a mile of the nesting site which it's really tough to tell if that's happening if you're just walking up to a wall on an approach trail and a golden eagle flushes off of a nest a half a mile away, you probably won't notice it. When we're viewing these nests and nest monitoring biologists, we're very far away. We're, we're using powerful optics to scan the cliffs and to watch the birds. And, and it's, it's very easy to unknowingly cause disturbance where, and then you, let's say you get to the wall, you spend half the day climbing there, you climb a bunch of pitches, you're hanging out at the base, that entire time, that bird may not come back to that nest site the whole time that you're there. And that, you know, that can cause the eggs to be vulnerable to predation by ravens or to changing temperature extremes. And that can cause the nest to fail if that happens just a few times throughout the course of the season. Later on, once the chicks hatch, the, the parents are a little bit more reluctant to abandon the nest at that point, but we can still see nest failures because of parental abandonment after the chicks have hatched. Or we can see other types of nest failures where if a, a nest is really close to a climbing route, and I've seen this up in, in Tinsleep, Wyoming, um, there's a really popular wall that prairie falcons like to nest on. And multiple times when I've gone there, I've seen a nestling prairie falcon that's way too young to fly that's actually jumped out of the nest because someone climbed really close to the nesting site itself. And, and typically when I've seen that, the adult prairie falcon is flying back and forth and calling and calling and calling and calling. And you can hear her voice becoming hoarse from just calling all day and, and making that alarm call over and over to try to, to warn people away from her nest site. It's really a tragedy. I think most of the time when, when these failures are occurring, 
it's not because climbers are doing anything malicious or intentional. It's just, it's hard to tell. It's like a cascade of intervention. Like they talk in human childbirth. If, right. you know, you're having trouble having your child and then medical interventions get involved and then one thing cascades to another to another. Sure. And in my mind, that is what it is similar to with nesting raptors. Like it could be one little thing, like you explain someone walking up an approach trail Say, for example, you have flushed the eagle off of prey and it can't get back to it because you're in that area, then it does not eat. And if it's not going to eat, it's not going to feed young on the nest. One of the major reasons why raptor nests fail or why reproductive success is not achieved is due to juvenile starvation. Right. So we've got abandonment and then starvation, even if the juveniles survive. Sure. And, and it may be where... Um... Yeah, the parents are spending their energy defending their nest from from intruders, you know, rather than going out and foraging for prey or or maybe they have prey but they're reluctant to go back and bring it back to the nesting site when people are around. So it's there's a lot of ways that that recreational activity can can affect nesting season or or any activity really. And and again to to take it back and make the comparison with with other types of activities that happen on public lands like for instance, like if you're going to construct a new well pad close to a raptor nest, the BLM is not going to let you do that during the springtime. It's against the law. And they'll have you do it in the fall. And and that, you know, maybe it's inconvenient, but that's this public process has been created to make those type of decisions and that's the way things are done. And and so um as climbing becomes more and more popular, it becomes more and more of this political issue where our impacts are significant. And so it's, it's time to, to take a little bit um, longer look at, at what's going on. And that's why you have increasing regulation in places like Indian Creek. And you, you know, you talk about it being inconvenient for um, an extractive project to, you know, they would love to just start March 1st, but they can't start till September 1st. And one of the things I like to try to remind climbers or other outdoor enthusiasts about is that these are seasonal inconveniences. They are not full on closures that are limiting us from climbing at the reservoir wall ever again. They're avoidance areas. It is voluntary currently. However, if we do not respect these voluntary avoidance areas and treat them as a seasonal inconvenience, they could become permanent closures that's a possibility for sure and and i think in the situation we're in now as climbers um we really have an opportunity to show that we can be good stewards of of natural resources and i would argue most of us are like right as as chris kalu said in the run out podcast interview he did with you a couple years ago People grumble, but most people will obey these avoidance areas. For sure. It's interesting because even in an, avoid in an avoidance area where compliance isn't 100%, it's still going to give the birds a better chance to reproduce than if people weren't aware at all. It's kind of like having the first COVID vaccination versus none at all. Sure. You might, you might not be fully protected, but you're getting there. Yeah, and, and, and anything helps. It's it's really an opportunity for recreationists, and, and not just climbers are, are affected by this. You know, the National Park Service will close hiking trails and ATV routes and things like that to protect nesting species. And so, you know, we're talking 
about climbing because that's the type of recreation that we both like to do and that we're most familiar with. But but these issues are are much beyond just the climbing community. But we really have this opportunity right now to show that this less invasive type of regulation works. And and that's where biologists like like folks like me and and Lisa come in if we can document reproductive success in areas where climbing is happening around those birds if they're reproducing successfully generally land managers in my experience don't have a problem one of the areas where i helped uh the climbing community engage with a land manager was in maple canyon in central utah sport climbing area really popular in the summertime there's golden eagles that nest there as well it's a really narrow canyon for some reason or other those eagles are habituated to the presence of people I think it might have something to do with the timing of when the recreation happens there, but we don't need to go quite down that rabbit hole. Well, actually, I think that is a good rabbit hole because typically eagles start nesting pretty early, early. in the breeding season. We've already got them on nests, um, and as of you know February is when we started sure. doing our surveys. And typically in Maple Canyon, people aren't climbing until summer, so right. that is giving those juveniles a chance to be well-fed taught how to properly fledge how to fly right and start doing their own hunting and 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 the pair that that likes to nest there they have that critical early period of the nesting season when disturbance is low and so by the time people do start coming into the canyon more and more they're well established and they are less likely to abandon their nest at that point another thing that's unfortunate about this issue is that birds kind of like people they're idiosyncratic and some pairs are very sensitive to disturbance and some are not. And, and that's a really hard thing, I think, for people to wrap their head around, but it's unfortunately the truth. But the, the good side of that of that story about pair in Maple Canyon and the reason that I brought it up is because biologists are able to document that reproductive success in a situation where there's very minimal management in terms of closures or in terms of of avoidance areas or restrictions like that and when the reproductive success is happening the managers are able to say well this is working there's no need for us to go to a more strict type of scenario because they're accomplishing their goal which is protection of this natural resource and in terms of wildlife um and the protected species that they're responsible for taking care of the raptor species we're speaking of um i'm going to call eric the Eagle Whisperer. I'm the Owl Hooter. We both kind of have crossover with peregrine falcons and uh, prairie falcons. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about most raptor species are very long-lived. So an adult raptor that makes it through its first year has, you know, it's been born, it fledges, it goes off, and it winters over. That bird is most likely, has a 90% chance, let's just say, of living till natural death. Sure. A juvenile of the year, uh, the species I work with, Mexican spotted owls, has up to a 10% chance of surviving its first year. So that gives us the reproductive success of one individual from a pair of owls every 10 years. That's really, really low on the scale of what we are talking about. What outdoor enthusiasts see is the pair of peregrine falcons continuously returning to the same place. Mm -hmm. And so on their mind is, why do I need to restrict my access to this area when I see these birds come back year after year after year? 
And what it comes down to is, yes, they have high nest site fidelity. You can't break that from them. Even sometimes the offspring will come back to their natal sites and reproduce. But the juveniles, the intangible that you might not see is that those juveniles have died of starvation. And you would never, if you saw someone at a cliff, say, rappelling down and knocking a peregrine falcon nest off a ledge, what would you do? You'd be outraged. You would be like so indignant. You would want to turn those people into the authorities. Sure. That is in effect what our actions can have on these birds. Yeah, they can. And it's important to think of it again to not necessarily in terms of, of populations, but also in terms of individuals, because the question is really, I, in my opinion, it's, it's a matter of style. And climbers are very concerned with style, right? They're concerned with putting up the coolest route with only the minimum protection that they need to be safe and and spending a lot of time and effort to do the most, you know, technically or physically challenging climb that they can. When you do a climb and then someone else comes along and does it in better style, that's something that the climbing community really values. And so to me, part of... of climbing with good style is climbing in a manner that's that's environmentally friendly and that takes into account the impacts that we're having not only on sensitive species but on non-sensitive species as well and on other users so issues like human waste at the crag and trail erosion and things like that like to me when I want to go climbing I want to do it in a way that's going to be that's going to allow future users of public lands to have the same experience that I'm having to the extent that that's possible decades from now and into perpetuity. And, and I think with an activity like climbing, it remains to be seen if that's possible. Um, we're going through a lot of changes and a lot of growth and, and so many things are happening. And I think right now is a really critical time in the development of our sport and in increasing popularity of, of, outdoor recreation in general for us to make these type of decisions. In 2019, Indian Creek became part of Bears Ears National Monument and the land managers got more involved with both identifying nest sites, monitoring these nest sites, and getting a more robust management program for these avoidance areas. You came in on that. Um, We worked together to get Mm -hmm. you down there. The downside to climbers might be that all of a sudden, it seems like there are these avoidance areas and that they are spreading because we are doing more monitoring. Yeah, I I can understand that. I I think really what's happening is these areas are becoming more popular. The change in designation from Bureau of Land Management to a national monument has something to do with the increased level of scrutiny anywhere you go, park service lands are, are going to be more restricted in terms of the types of activities that are allowed. Um, for instance, hunting isn't permitted on park service lands. And so it's great. You know, a lot of climbers are enthusiastic about the designation from BLM to National Monument, and, and I am as well, but it comes with a higher level of responsibility that we have towards the, those lands that we designate as having this this high value, whether that's recreational value, cultural value, natural aesthetic beauty, or, or what have you. So really the designation is goes hand in hand with an increased level of regulation, 
just because we as a society have decided that these places that we designate, we have a higher level of responsibility towards being stewards of that place. And so I think I can't speak for the park service. I'm not a, a public employee, but that's my sense as to why those uh, avoidance areas expanded so much uh, at that time. And then the monitoring was actually followed secondary to that as a way to support those avoidance areas and make sure that they're based on evidence and on scientific proof that these areas that are that are being designated, being managed in terms of asking people to avoid them, actually are important to the bird species that we're interested in and that they're actually being used. Um, and And in a lot of places, land managers don't necessarily have the resources to do that. And that's where we see things like blanket closures that that I think as a biologist are, are unfortunate because they do tend to alienate the recreation community in a way that closures that are supported by monitoring do less. I totally agree. And I also think that um, avoidances or closures that are based on what scientific evidence we have that if we don't have direct evidence, say, that climbing has a negative effect, if we have something we can extrapolate from that, and that these closures are appropriate to the activities that are being restricted during this time. Because otherwise, as you and I know from being on both sides of the fence, mm -hmm. the user group is not going to respect the avoidances if they don't see how it pertains to what they do, or if they don't see the give and take that you and I have been working really hard with the uh, Bears Ears with Indian Creek on getting early establishment of sites, monitoring those sites, and then if there is not nest success or if the birds have moved to a different location, we can get those cliffs reopened as quickly as possible. And that's going to be a long period of time. The birds, it doesn't happen in two days. There's got to be some patience involved with this whole season. Right, and the, and the process of nest monitoring <clears throat> is just slow it takes time uh when biologists are out there trying to determine if a nest is active i mean it can take several hours of watching a cliffside before you see an adult peregrine poke its head out of the nest and, and call for its mate and then the mate flies over and you're like oh it was sitting on that other tree all along and i just never saw it and so if you watch a nest for several hours and you don't see anything, you may not necessarily know that the nest has been abandoned or that it isn't in use. You have to do that a couple of times in order to determine, okay, yeah, we're, we're confident that this one really isn't being used. So it's, it's a slow process and folks in my position and Lisa's position and, and in the position of the land managers appreciate the, the patience and the confidence that the recreation community places in us um, and we're doing the absolute best that we can to give the managers accurate information so that they can make informed decisions about management because it does affect a lot of people i mean people love to climb people come from all over the world to climb at Indian creek during the springtime and the popular cliffs are getting crowded and so having access to more cliffs is is going to really improve the experience for a lot of people and, and managers know that and they're not making these decisions lightly but it does take time and it does take personnel in terms of just time spent watching those nests and, and figuring out where the birds are. And that's, that's not really, there aren't really any shortcuts to that. And birds are kind of on their own timeline too. I mean, for example, I'm going to go back to golden eagles because that's a species I'm the most familiar with. 
the way their reproductive timeline works is, as Lisa said, they can be on their nest incubating eggs as early as mid or late February. But in other parts of the state or a different elevation or even in the same area and it's just a different year with different conditions, they may not start nesting until a month later. You know, we, the latest we see eagles sitting down on eggs is like April 1st in a lot of our West Desert study areas. And so that's a huge range of time. And so I, I want to recognize, too, that it's a big ask for, from the land managers to the recreation community to say, hey, be patient. Um, we're not sure if the birds are going to nest this year. Give us another month for them to decide, right? And so that's, that's a lot to ask, but that, that is what the biology of these species demand. Unfortunately, it's, it's nature, and nature is, is highly variable. There's, there's give and take from both sides, and, and I think I'm optimistic that um, the type of recreational resources that we have available to us here in the West, there's still a lot of places we can go and climb. There's a lot of places we can go and recreate. And if we want to have that off-the-beaten-path experience, that, that kind of nature adventure experience that a lot of us got into climbing in order to pursue we're not going to the reservoir wall anyway, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of value to be had at that, at that area. The value that those crags provide in terms of the particular hard roots that people get excited about, and we've been, we've been kind of going deep and, and on climbing since that's what we're both the most familiar with, but for those in the audience that don't climb, climbers will get obsessed with one particular crack and they'll go back to that same crack over and over again and try it over and over again because that's the one they really want to do and that's the one that has like a cool story associated with it or they saw someone climbing it in a video and they got really excited and they'll go across the country to try that one that one route and so opening up particular areas can have a lot of value um for the climbing community and and that I think that's why a lot of people are concerned when places like the cat wall the reservoir wall close but I guess I just want to I don't know this this the new climbing scene of of that difficulty oriented performance oriented rock climbing that social oriented rock climbing it's a little bit higher impact in terms of people being concentrated on these particular popular areas. And so I think it demands a little bit higher level of responsibility among the users versus back in the day when it was just a few people going out to the cliff and you go out in the desert and walk up to a random wall and put up a first ascent. Or maybe you heard that such and such someone had put up some routes out in this wall and you went out to try to find them and, oh, we found the bolts. So I guess we found the roots, but we didn't see anyone else. And, and so I think you'd be hard pressed to, uh, to go out to Indian Creek to climb nowadays and not see anyone else, whatever time of year it is, whether it's dead of winter, midweek, you're going to see somebody out there. Given that that's the new reality of, of our world, our obligation towards stewardship is a little bit higher than it needed to be in the past. Totally agree. And one of the things that I've learned this year, uh, you know, you and I, we go out, we do these surveys, we report our findings to a land manager, and then, you know, we kind of assume that things follow their natural course. But one of the things I learned is that messaging is a lot more important than I realized. And it was just like one of those accidental things on social media where I saw something that I got drawn into in which 
a lot of people don't realize that we are actively monitoring these sites and that we are actively right. trying to get access reestablished to those areas as appropriate and that the messaging needs to be continuous during the whole process. And you and I, as both biologists and climbers and in our roles in stewardship, working with the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, working with Friends of Indian Creek, people like us need to actually be more involved with the whole process in terms of messaging and letting people know we are monitoring, but it takes a while and please just bear with us. Right, right. And it's a, it's a complicated issue just because as we've talked about today, you know, a bird may have a particular territory that they maintain with multiple nests and some of those nests are close to climbing areas and other ones aren't. And so maybe they choose to breed that year, maybe they don't, maybe they pick one of the nests that's further away from the wall and so the wall can open back up even though the birds are in that area. And so there's a lot of different variables that are that go into these these decisions and this monitoring and and I think um, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation because of that. It is a nuanced issue and, and there's a lot of, of details to it that, that maybe aren't necessarily readily obvious on the surface. I mean, before I became a biologist, you know, when I was first getting into climbing as, uh, before I began my career in natural resources, I didn't even know that birds nested in the spring. And so, you know, or, or that the nest was a, a reproductive structure that they use to lay eggs in rather than a place where a bird sleeps at night. And so I, I think as biologists, we have a responsibility to come to um, recreational communities and not talk down to them and treat them like they're stupid because none of this stuff is really that complicated. I mean, it's all it all kind of makes sense once you once you know about it. But but to meet people where they are in terms of their level of engagement with, with this type of things that are, you know, part and parcel of what we do every day. And so I think for biologists and for land managers, it's important for them to come, like you said, with the right type of messaging and explaining what the purposes are for these closures and what the type of monitoring that's being done is and, and why that's important. And being really proactive in not just assuming that the land managers themselves can get that message out to the target audience, but that we as stewards need to like be like, okay, so this cliff is, maybe we make the signs and bring them down to put them on the appropriate fence at Indian Creek or bring posters to all the gear shops and spread that word so that people know where we are at in um, the cycle of the reproductive success of the birds or not and how that's going to affect their climbing. Right, right. And I think groups like Friends of Indian Creek and the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, um, local climbing organizations all across uh, the country at every different area, pretty much most major areas have one now. And if any of you listeners are, are traveling through Moab and visiting Indian Creek or the other recreational areas and you're going to head back to your own place, um, those are, find out what that organization is. And, and those are great ones to support. Um, a lot of the stewardship around not only rapid closures, but all, you know, the other issues that we mentioned, trail erosion, human waste, um, things like that. Those local climbing organizations are the first line of defense for those natural resources at the crags and at other recreation sites. And to the extent that climbers can manage those impacts themselves, the land managers would almost always prefer 
that that happened over them having to use their limited resources, their limited budgets on addressing those impacts. And that's a situation that climbers prefer as well. So those, those organizations, local climbing organizations, really deserve your support in terms of financial contributions, contributions in time. You know, they always have trail days and things like that. Um, the Access Fund does a lot as well. Um, that's kind of like a typically affiliated with the local climbing organizations. And so those are a great way for people to become more engaged. Um, I know a lot of the the messaging that that we get out in the West Desert in the Salt Lake area around raptor nests comes through the social media channels of the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance. Um, as a biologist and, and as a climber, I don't have the ability to reach anywhere near the amount of climbers that, that those organizations do. So they have a great role to play um, in terms of the messaging and and by connecting with those organizations as an individual, you can become more keyed in on, on what are the issues surrounding uh, the impacts of your recreation, whether that's, you know, trail construction or, or wildlife impacts like we're talking about today or what have you. So those are great organizations to support and be part of. Yeah, I think if, um, if I could, and I probably have already made this obvious, if I could relay one tip or suggestion to um, non-biologists uh, or non-people who don't necessarily interact with the wildlife on the way that we do, is that the interaction that you have incidentally with an adult of the species, and it could be a bighorn sheep, sure. it could be a bird of prey, it could be um, a wild cat, the interaction that you have with that adult that seems fairly innocuous because the adult is well, is grown and established, is not the same intangible reaction that could trickle down to the juveniles. What would be a message that you would like to like get out there to the, the non-biologist public sure. of like what they can keep in their head? Yeah, so I, I think it's, um, it's important to learn to interpret the signs that animals give us. And typically when you see an animal you can read its behavior in terms of its body language and, and tell a little bit about what's going on for that animal. And then that helps you make a choice about, Oh, okay, I'm doing something in this, you know, deer that's in my backyard eating my flowers doesn't seem to care when I go outside and, you know, take care of something. It just hangs out and sits there like that animal's probably not being disturbed. But when you approach a cliff and a, a raptor is flying back and forth and calling, that's not a normal behavior for that animal. That's a disturbance response behavior. And so I think that what I kind of want to leave people with is when you're out there and you see a bird flying back and forth and calling or flying away from a nest site and not coming back, um, that, that can be an indicator that you may be disturbing that bird. And, and again, a nest is a reproductive structure that only gets used in the spring. So summertime, fall time, winter, not a big deal. Springtime, that's the time when they're a little bit more sensitive. So a red-tailed hawk flying around overhead, kind of focusing on where you are and calling a few times, generally that means you're in their territory and they're asking you to leave. A peregrine will be very explicit about that, and they are good at getting the message across. A golden eagle, unfortunately, 
they're not. They just tend to leave the area and they don't usually vocalize or um, or show a very a very noticeable disturbance response most of the time. So, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate for them because I think people would be more willing to give them space if they made their presence known the way a peregrine does or the, a red-tailed hawk does. If they weren't whisperers. Right. <laughs> so I, I think it's just important to, when you're going out in nature, when you're recreating, look around you and, and observe what animals are doing if you encounter um, an animal or, or a bird of prey in particular. And, and those, those behaviors, um, flying back and forth and calling, are a big indication that there may be a disturbance happening. And that's a situation where you can leave the area. You might report that to a, a local land manager for whatever um, type of land you're recreating on, um, because there, you know, birds move around all the time, and there may be a different nest site that they don't know about. If you're around the corner from a closed area and you're climbing at some second tier, low grade wall, and there's a raptor there, well, maybe that pair moved around the corner from that area that's closed and once the biologists determine oh that's not a different pair that's the same pair that other wall may open back up so it's it's not necessarily gonna make things worse if you report could make things better it could make things better you never know more information is better that's what we think anyway (laughs) i agree and i do like to think when i'm out in the field i'm sure you feel the same way when you're doing eagle surveys you stay 600 meters away if you can yeah, to observe the birds. When I'm doing surveys of any type, if I hear a response from particularly owls, in my mind what is registering is they're not doing what they need to do to survive and to raise their young right. and get to recovery numbers because they're interacting with me. And while it's really fun to sit in a canyon at night and call back and forth with a Mexican spotted owl, it's a pretty incredible experience sure in the back of my mind is that bird needs to be hunting that bird needs to be you know re- mating yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah. not with me <laughs> and so just a little um a little bit of like background for those that aren't familiar with their activities when you're talking about calling back and forth with an owl what you'll do and correct me if i'm wrong but you'll go into a canyon that you're interested in determining whether owls are occupying that that breeding territory you'll play a territorial call and then you'll listen and hear if the owls respond back. Yeah. And they'll typically come in close and closer and closer as you continue to play the call. Is that is that correct? Owls in particular are really curious about anything in their um, territory. And yeah, you can, if you're not careful, you can bring uh, an owl over from an adjacent canyon. Or, sure. It's this double-edged sword because my approach is generally, if I'm where I really think there's going to be owls... I actually want to be more quiet for as long as I can be to detect and them without to detect them interacting them. Sure. amongst themselves. And they're not going to be typically that spooked by me, but I can distract them from sure. the business at hand. Right. Whereas like an eagle, you could be walking up to a cliff and be like, "Oh, I'm having this great nature experience. I just saw this golden eagle fly off of a fly prairie away dog." From the cliff. Yeah. And that was so cool. And what you don't see is that you've just possibly started that cascade. Sure. Yeah, and and just to go back to like interpreting behavior a little bit too and 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 why Lisa tries to passively detect owls rather than using the callbacks if she can is that callback the message that that's sending is, "Hey, I'm here. 
I'm going to take your territory. I'm coming into your house. I'm coming in. I'm right here. Come get me. And the owl comes back and says, oh, no, you're not. I'm going to get you. Come here. Like, who's ready to fight? And so... <laughs> I've actually had some owls show what I would describe as amorous intent. Oh, amorous. Okay. So maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's not necessarily... Uh, However you look at it, there... <laughs> a territorial aggression response. It might be more of a, a breeding response. Interesting. Like, wow, I've never heard that noise before, but that sounds not like it's... Uh wants to fight yeah well interesting yeah i mean i guess that varies from species to species and I, i'm a little out of my depth on uh on mexican spotted owls apparently but that's that's interesting they're looking for love in all their own places <laughs> so what as as outdoor enthusiasts what what can we do to work with these species work with these land managers and make everybody happy what's the magic ticket eric um the golden charlie and the chocolate factory ticket I think the, the golden ticket is respecting closures, being patient in terms of taking advantage of the bountiful recreation opportunities that we have here in the West. And at the same time, I think there is some room to make sure that the monitoring is taking place. And that these closures are based on, on science and on monitoring. I think, I think there's, that's the response. The responsibility of the climbers is to avoid closures and and reduce their disturbance as much as they can. And I think the land managers have a responsibility as well to make sure that those those closures are well maintained, well intentioned, and supported by monitoring. Well, I would like to recommend to people that if they um, want, if you're in the area and you want to follow up on our local avoidance areas and what the monitoring is going on and how things are proceeding during the season, we are going to be really proactive with that on the Friends of Indian Creek Facebook page. So I would suggest checking that out. And Eric, do you have any suggestions for resources if people want to educate themselves more about raptor biology and ecology or bighorn sheep biology and ecology and just in general how to follow up? On sure. This? Um, there's also a scheduled Leave No Trace Summit that's going to take place at Arches National Park. I'm not sure the exact dates on that, but but keep an eye out for that. That should be coming up this spring, and, and that'll have information about, about all those issues and a way to connect with folks who are educators on, on best stewardship practices. Well, we really appreciate all the efforts that our outdoor enthusiasts make to try to ensure that these species have the best shot at their one time per year in the spring chance to get it on and get it done and get some babies made and Eric I really appreciate that you have taken time out of your busy schedule and ski weekend to sit with me here in the a normal cast the one and only mobile, mobile studio studio <laughs> del fuego and um, I don't know how mobile it's looking nowadays but it's, it's certainly comfortable in I, here I think she'll still run free and thank you so much yeah. for joining us here on Great Wide it's Open It's my pleasure awesome. thank you so much for having me Lisa Great Wide Open airs on the second Mondays of every month at 4 p.m. on KZMU